to the end. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you should, should each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thanks, Steve. I'm not sure what uh, you're expecting with this series. And you read a, a passage like that and it's extremely countercultural these days, isn't it? Um, I think where, where we're coming from with this series today, I want to lay a, f- a framework, a foundation for approaching and looking at the whole matter of marriage. It's widely agreed that the institution of marriage is in crisis in the Western world. And I, I, you know, I could produce all kinds of information, but basically divorce rates are going that way, marriage rates are going that way. And uh, the number of second, third and fourth time marriages is increasing. In fact, some people are just avoiding marriage altogether. I've got a brother that's been married twice and engaged three times. And, um, you know, it, it happens. The length of time that, that people are married for is declining and the very definition of marriage is changing. So I just want to read to you Wikipedia's statement of what marriage is and see if you can pick up something that struck me. Marriage, also called matrimony or wedlock, is a socially or ritually recognised union or legal contract between spouses that establishes rights and obligations between them, between them and their children, and between them and their in-laws. The definition of marriage varies according to different cultures, but it is principally an institution in which interpersonal relationships, usually sexual, are acknowledged. In some cultures, marriage is recommended or considered to be compulsory before pursuing any sexual activity. When defined broadly, marriage is considered a cultural universal. Now, I won't waste your time. The thing that struck me about that definition is it does not mention husband or wife. It says spouses. It's deliberately ambiguous and that tells us something about the culture 
in which we're operating. Clearly, there are reasons why the ideal and practice of marriage is being contested and much research is being undertaken and theories, opinions abound about it. And I'm not going to go into all of that today, but I just want to say that the reason why we're taking on this series is that we're convinced that to be faithful to Christ, we have to tackle this subject. To be faithful to Christ and true to his word, we have to look at this subject. We cannot afford to be silent on these matters. Our nation will likely face a plebiscite on same-sex marriage in the near future. It may or may not happen, we don't know. And the word of God has something to say about it. And because questions to do with marriage and sexual purity issues arise a lot when you're a pastor. So it's the sort of thing that we need to address. So in presenting this six-week series, it's an effort to guard against the erosion of the Christian view of marriage and homosexuality and sexuality by teaching proactively on the subject and to address more broadly the Christian view of marriage, singleness and sexuality. Now I'd just like to say before we get into Ephesians 5 and opening scripture that this is a huge undertaking and I just want to to, um, offer an apology ahead of time in case I inadvertently offend anyone because it's it's just a minefield and it's so easy to tread on on, people's sensitive spots without even being aware of it because of what people go through and the circumstances that they encounter. I mean that not just for, for this message today, but for the series. We'll be looking at things like homosexuality and gender dysphoria and singleness. So there's a whole range of issues that we're looking at. And if, if something really affects you, please come and talk with us. It's not our desire to, to create any more difficulty. It's a desire to help. So today my aim is to explain God's intention and plan for marriage. And if we get anything beyond that, it's a bonus. So um, any view of life that fails to acknowledge God as the ultimate reference point, I think, is doomed to have some cracks and serious Um, rocking and shaking in its foundations because God is the bedrock of where we begin with. We're made in his image. So how do you understand human beings if you have no reference point with God? The very claim that, that, you know, right back in Genesis 1, God made man male and female in his own image. In the image of God he made them male and female that is a countercultural statement today because if you don't even acknowledge that there's a God, what are you the image of? And what's the significance of that? And it was the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras, not Pythagoras, Protagoras, who famously declared, Man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. And when we take man as the measure of all things, we try and work out what seems logical to us and there's no reference to the one in whose image we made. And it's no wonder that the results that we come up with, the conclusions that we draw, 
uh, don't square with what we're reading in the Bible. Because when we open our Bibles, we're into an intensely God-centred worldview. And that's what we've got in Ephesians chapter 5, a God-centred worldview. So as we look at this chapter, it's, it's easy to get caught up with the why do wives have to submit themselves to the husbands? Why doesn't it say that the husband should do that? What does it mean for the husbands to sacrifice themselves for their, for their wives? And, you know, you know, the outworking of that. Now, I'm not belittling that. I'm, I'm, I'm saying we need to look at that. But I want to look at something else. I want to look at why. Consider the why question. There's a framework coming through here. There's at least as much said in Ephesians chapter 5 about Christ as there is about husbands and wives. Just look what it says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. It's Christ, Christ, the church. I thought he's talking about marriage. And then, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So what's going on here? This is, this, this is not your average um, marriage enrichment talk, is it? This isn't like, where is he coming from with this? And basically... What we're seeing in Ephesians 5 is a, a, an example of why we're encountering difficulties of understanding about marriage in our world today. The traditional view of the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life as a social good, as something for the good of society, for the benefit of raising children, is being contested and even rejected in many quarters as too narrow and exclusive. And the view of marriage that's coming through instead, the revisionist view, is that marriage is about the shared life, love, happiness and fulfilment of any two consenting adults, regardless of gender. It's about marriage equality. It's about the ability for one to relate to the other in a way that they find fulfilment. No reference to God, no reference to Christ, no reference to, to male and female or even a consideration perhaps of why. And when we try and tackle this issue, it's, it's, we go immediately onto the back foot because the, the little sound bites of arguments that are presented are, why can't we be equal? You can, you can choose to love your wife and be married, but I can't choose to be married to... I don't have the liberty to be married to my boyfriend when I'm a guy or my girlfriend when I'm a girl. That's not fair. Other countries can. And this revisionist view confronts us with questions like, what 
actually is marriage? Why have we viewed marriage as exclusively between a man and a woman for so long? Why shouldn't people of the same sex marry? And do children deserve to be brought up by a father and a mother as far as possible? Does it make any difference? What is wrong with sex before marriage? Is it okay to want to be single but sexually active? And questions like this. And I think we need to address those questions. They're good questions. So um, as, we, as we look now, I want to say, as we look at the whole matter of the purpose of marriage, to answer this question, we can't just jump in to chapter 5. It would be like um, coming along partway through a cricket match. And you have no idea what over you're in, you know, who's batting, and you want to ask yourself, what's going on here? Um, where are we at? And get a, get a few things sorted out so you can get yourself orientated and sit down and enjoy the rest of the match. So what is the purpose of marriage that's being addressed here in chapter 5? There's a key term that keeps emerging in Ephesians, and it's mystery. Mystery, and it appears in this section on marriage. Right near the end, it says, This, verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. If you, if you look back at chapter 3 and, and verse 3, it says, This is the mystery made known to, to me by revelation. Verse 6, This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Verse 9, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. There's this... Christ is solving a mystery. Christ is, is bringing God's plans and purposes to a conclusion, to a fulfilment. God's got something happening that is not immediately apparent to us. We have to struggle with it. It's a bit of a mystery to us. We think, what is going on here? And I'd just like to, to share with you this, this whole thing about marriage and it has sparked me on a journey. I remember a few years ago, I sat down and I said, Lord, why is it that two guys, what, what's so wrong about two guys being married? Or what's so wrong about two women being married? What, what is it about that that your word seems to object to? Because it's not immediately apparent to me. And when I, I was forced to look at what scripture says, it became more and more clear that there is something about marriage that portrays something about God and the gospel in a way that can happen when there's a man and a woman that cannot happen when it's a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And God is concerned for his own glory. But there is a mystery about it. And it's, it's when you, we're really up against it as Christians because we struggle to understand what the mystery is, let alone trying to explain to someone that isn't a Christian and they don't have the, the same framework and reference point. So Ephesians is actually answering one of the most perplexing questions that the early church faced. 
are Gentile converts to Christ required to obey the Jewish commandments that distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations, like dietary laws, circumcision, sacrifices, feasts, festivals. Do Gentiles have to celebrate those things or not? And, the, and mystery is an important theme because it talks about oneness. If you look in chapter 2, God's grace brings Jew and Gentile together as one. In chapter 1, it's, it's God, the mystery of his will to reconcile all things in heaven and earth. So chapter 1, the mystery is about the cosmos. Christ, who is God and man in the one person, reconciles heaven and earth. Chapters 2 and 3, he reconciles on this way between Jew and Gentile. And in chapter 5, after talking in chapter 4 about unity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all, he talks about reconciliation between the genders, between male and female that was disrupted at the fall. And marriage just makes no sense if you do away with gender. A whole thing, just why is Paul dealing with this issue if, if it's okay to have two guys or two, two women to marry? It just The whole line of reasoning just goes out the door. The key to understanding what is going on here is covenant. Covenant is a term that talks about unity. Covenant is the Bible's way of explaining how things that are different can become one. The very nature of a covenant is that there's two parties and they have an agreement. And in this agreement there are terms and conditions and it, and it involves the shedding of blood and, and they celebrate it with a meal. So Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many, drink all of it, the Last Supper. And he's talking about this very issue that Ephesians is talking about. Christ reconciles heaven and earth. The, the sin factor that ruptured our relationship with God is brought together through Jesus. That flow-on effect through nation against nation, you know, drawing swords with one another and Gentiles hating Jews and Jews not eating with Gentiles, the gospel of God's reconciling love through Jesus Christ brings the warring parties back together and out of the two makes one new man, making them whole, making them one. This is covenant terminology. In Genesis 1, you see, when God creates the world, he separates things. He separates the light from the darkness, He's the water above from the water below, the dry land from the sea. And he separates Eve from the side of Adam. And then he goes about creating unity out of what he's separated. But sin messes the whole thing up. And sin almost makes it impossible for things that have been separated by God to be united. And instead, the things that have been united by God, we go and separate. And that's why Jesus says in relation to marriage, he says, that which God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the language of covenant. You see it coming out in the temple. 
The temple is about sacred objects and, and, and holiness and reverence and awe for God. And there are walls and petitions dividing off the common from the holy, the sacred from the profane. And, and anyone unclean cannot enter into the holy place. And then there's the most holy place. There's a curtain that, that divides it off. There's separation. And there's sacrifice. There's offering. So the very term for covenant is to cut a covenant. When you cut something, you divide it. So it's, it's, it's to do with the very fabric of creation. God who separated in order to bring together parts that belong together is a God who reconciles and he has created males and females in a way that mirrors his image and their togetherness reflects something beautiful and out of that can flow life. Be fruitful, multiply. When two become one flesh, there is life. But you don't see that with two males. You don't see that with two females. It inherently just doesn't work because it's not how God designed it. Because it's a separating of what God intended. It's a confusion of the order that he intended. But people are blind to it. They don't see it. So if we're to just... I'm conscious of time here. Um, We need to bring things together. So Ephesians 5, when it talks about Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's explaining how through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the outpoured spirit of God, God uses marriage to bring to us the message of the gospel. There is something about a husband and wife coming together as one financially, sexually, socially, uniting together as one in marriage that portrays how God reconciles us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. As, as husbands and wives dwell together in love, we can dwell together with God. And God can dwell in us. There's this indwelling, there's this abiding. It's the language of covenant and of life and of unity. So marriage is God's idea. And through, through the New Testament, the word um, submit is a positive word. We're to submit to the governing authorities. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. I do only those things my father tells me. We've taken it on as a negative thing, as we don't have to think, we don't have any rights, the husband lords it over. But we're told here in this passage that it's as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. There's something in the very act, the sacrificial act, of a husband caring for his wife in a sacrificial way that portrays the gospel that makes known the magnificent love of God and his concern for us in our separateness and his desire to bring us together and to unify us. It speaks powerfully of the love of God. It's not too much to say that the primary purpose of marriage is to portray the gospel 
of Christ's loving sacrifice for his bride, the church, reconciling the world, Jew and Gentile, to himself and making of the two one. So if you're married, think about the fact that in your relationship, you can portray the togetherness of, you know, a little microcosm of what God is about doing in the world, breaking down the dividing walls, turning swords into plowshares, bringing peace, bringing reconciliation to enemies, making two that are different, one. And out of that comes life. Out of that comes hope. Out of that is fellowship. And marriage was designed from the beginning to represent that, to portray that. It isn't just that it's a convenient example that Paul uses. He says, for this reason, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What reason? Christ and the church. But when we have a view of the world that just removes God from it, we're left to manufacture our own ideas and try and make sense of it and make it work according to what seems logical. For God is about unveiling and revealing his plans and purposes and it takes a bit of working at. But, but if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. If we ask him, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. He is a revealer of mysteries. He wants to make known his plans and purposes and he's done it in his son, Jesus Christ, for those that have eyes to see it and ears to hear it and the will of God and the new heart to live it. So in the church, we have this golden opportunity to portray the life and the love and the hope of Christ, where two become one. I look around the group here. I see people from different nations. I see different colours of hair and skin and ethnic backgrounds. We look around and you see some people have a bit of an accent and others, others don't. And, and it's about... Where else can you find such diversity dwelling in unity? And that's the work of God. And our marriage is a little microcosm of that. And you just talk to any parents with their children and, and you, you recognise the difference between your children, don't you? How different they are and yet they've got the same parents. Different personalities, different perspectives, different little ways and habits. And what works with one doesn't necessarily work with another. And we've been given this challenge of trying to make the family work and get along together. And you didn't have a choice in it. You don't choose your parents. Parents don't choose their children. It just, it happens that way. And it needs the grace of God to work. It needs the spirit of the living God to work. 
So my encouragement to us as we go into this series is let's try and be able to put some of our, maybe our preconceived ideas to one side, really open ourselves up to what the scriptures teach on these things and say, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. Life hasn't worked necessarily that well for me. I need your wisdom. Bring forth out of the mysterious purposes of your ways, your plans and your purposes that I might have life and have it more abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit may really speak to us in this series on marriage and sexuality. Give us the encouragement, Lord, to believe that, that you are at work in this world, bringing to pass plans and purposes that we could scarcely imagine, that it, it isn't for us to just be judgmental of others, but neither is it for us to sit down and be doormats. Neither is it for us to be quiet. We ought to obey God rather than man. So, Father, give us the, the discernment, the guidance, the understanding and the capacity and the, the patience to, to listen to others as a husband needs to listen to his wife and a wife to a husband. Give us the patience that parents need with their children, with their tantrums and their self-centeredness. Give us patience, Lord, in these things and help us to mirror your patience with us. Help us to mirror your love for us amidst our differences. And, Father, we joke about um, the ways of, of the other gender being mysterious to us. But, Lord, we thank you for that, that there's intended to complement us. That, that you're at work in that differentness for your plans and your purposes. And without that difference, there can be no fruitfulness. Without that difference, there can be no enrichment. Encourage us, Lord, in our marriages to look to you, to find in you our bearings and our purpose, to be taught of the Lord in wisdom for Jesus' sake. Amen.